0: Hi friends, welcome back to the Create Magic Podcast. We're here for another episode of Creative Weirdos, where I talk to all my weird friends and all my art friends about all the weird creative stuff that we can uh, talk about. Today is super special. I have a really uh, just thoughtful person that I've been real lucky to connect with over the internet. Thanks to mainly uh, Jordan from the Campfire Tales podcast. We sing his praises later in this episode. Today we're talking with Vuk of the Tracing Owls and Darwin's Deviations podcast. Vuk has inspired a lot of new thoughts in regards to the paranormal and just kind of the weirdness of life in general uh, for me recently. If you've heard me talk about the Gaia hypothesis or anything along those lines, this is the gentleman who put all these ideas in my brain, more or less. And uh, yeah, I'll have links to all this stuff below. And I'm really excited for you to listen to this. Have a good day. Bye. certainly not going to talk about political stuff. No, no, no. We can, uh, we can definitely skirt all of that stuff. How far did you get into that fairy audiobook that you sent me?
1: Not, not much far. Um, I think I got to the different types of fairies.
0: Okay. Yeah. No, that's, I have not gotten much farther than that. I just got into the breakdown of all those and like I had no clue how thick. I mean, I knew fairy lore was super thick, but I had no clue. Like as far as world building, it really goes there. It's like all the way thorough. Yeah, uh, uh, this- like
1: the more I think about it, the more it's like so everything's a fairy because everything is associated with fairies.
0: There are no, so many ple- different types. Totally. And do you? Is this like with that? Have you read anything as far as like the standard fairy books or anything? No, no. I I
1: chose that book because I thought it's like a beginner level thing.
0: Totally. I only know what I listen to people talk about on podcasts. And like, I've read uh, some of like Joshua's books, Joshua Cutts. Yeah, yeah. Like I I can
1: start chatting with Jordan and we can talk about faith, folklore, and I'm just pulling stuff out of my ass. (laughs) like to be honest dude i haven't read a lot of the most important books i i never read the eighth tower from keel i never Mm -hmm. finished the mothman prophecies i have a reason for that i i okay so the reasoning is that i want to think figure out stuff on my own Mm -hmm. i don't want to be spoon-fed stuff Totally. Now, I know everybody's talking about the Eighth Tower and how it changes their perspective and whatnot, and I know that it is very Gaianist in what mm-hmm. it tries to convey, but I prefer that I come to the Gaia hypothesis on my own without Keel food
0: feeding it to me. Absolutely. Which you obviously did. <laughs> yeah. Do you think, and I mean, you seem like you're, uh, have pretty strong convictions as far as like, uh, before we start recording, you said you're a little slow to things. And I think that when people, like reference that I think it's because you're very intentional. And I feel like when you settle on a thought that's good enough to share, it seems like you've really thought it out. Like do you've I don't know if you would read the eighth tower if it would actually change your perspective on anything. I mean do you think it actually well, would now
1: now it wouldn't <laughs> because <laughs> I, I've learned so much on the side that it would not change my perspective a lot. Because you I, came I just to this see, before Yeah, Hold yeah. I, I just read Keel's uh, theories and think, wow, he came to the same conclusions as me, but formulated it differently because he used the term ultra terrestrial Uh or super spectrum (laughs) because he was more science fiction oriented and I'm more nature oriented.
0: Absolutely. And you came to the Gaia hypothesis even before you got into like James uh, Lovelock's work and everything. Yeah. Like you kind of came to
1: it. Are we recording now like for real?
0: Uh, I guess we might. Uh, is it working well? Have you heard any glitches yet? No, no. <laughs> okay, we're we're about four minutes or three and a half minutes in here. So let's go for it. And if it gets glitchy, then yeah. we'll we'll uh, pause it and go and go from there. But I mean, are you? Is this a cool place? Is this a good place to start as far as uh, subject matter? So you've listened
1: to my show. I just jump in. I I don't know how to do introductions.
0: Good. You so might this a- is perfect. Then <laughs> you might as well
1: keep all this in. <laughs>
0: No, I, well, I don't know how much you've noticed, but I do very little editing because I don't know how to. So, uh, so I, 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 I
1: actually do a lot of editing on my show. <laughs> I mean, obviously, because I did characters and sound effects and stuff like that. <laughs> but even on my monologuing uh, episodes, I do editing because I am somehow... Uh, I have a phobia of silence, of dead silence. Okay. You know? And sometimes when I'm talking with myself, like now I am more articulate i guess but when i'm talking with myself i need as as you said i am intentional with the words i use so i need to pause and think for a moment what i'm gonna say and then all those pauses i just you know cut out and and paste everything together
0: are you talking into a your phone or into a microphone Oh, i i talk
1: in i talk into my phone because it is much better than the stupid shitty mic i have now (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> that is super ch- I, it's i uh i've done a few just using the phone when we were like on vacation and stuff like i have this fancy ass microphone because i was in a band and we recorded yeah. stuff in my garage like i haven't bought anything for the podcast i just have okay now it's glitching now it's glitching oh, damn. okay all right so let's try let me uh i'm gonna save this here all right, so this is the part that I referenced in the intro where the uh, software started glitching and making weird noises. So we got rid of the video and started again. So it all came out perfect and there was no weirdness, but just wanted to let you know that's why this conversation completely abruptly stopped and then restarted. But yeah, that's about it. Enjoy the rest of it. It goes for another two hours and is just amazing. Vooks the best. Enjoy your day. Bye. So, uh,
1: I was doing a guest appearance uh, a few weeks ago.
0: Can you hear me? I hear you good. Tell me about this.
1: Okay. So, I was doing a guest appearance the other day for uh, a horror podcast. We were doing Frankenstein, the old movie. And he clicked record and I wanted to say, it's alive. (laughs) And I said (laughs) it, but it did not start recording at that moment.
0: (laughs) Well, at least you got to... Did you get to talk about it anyway? Yeah. That's awesome. Do you do you like the old uh, Frankenstein movie? Like, are you into the old monster movies and stuff?
1: So, I used to be into horror movies, I mean, as a teenager, but now I'm not really into cinema. But um, as my buddy from Autopsy Podcast is doing a, a new uh, horror podcast, um, I'm the guy who does more offbeat things with him. So we did X-Files, and now we did a double feature for Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein. And the next recording, (laughs) we're going to do a Goosebumps book.
0: Ooh, which one?
1: I think he he wants (laughs) to do The Haunted School or something like that. I never read that one.
0: Okay, were you a Goosebumps kid growing up?
1: Yeah, yeah, because I grew up in Canada. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I I remember like in Canada there were these dollar stores and I mean, I was not there. Well, I grew up mostly in the early 2000s. Okay. Uh, there were these old 90s Goosebumps editions in these yep. dollar stores. So I bought a, a whole ton of them.
0: The ones with like the raised text as the goosebumps that was all bumpy and stuff. Yeah, yeah, those are my favorites. I used to buy Monster all Blood growing up.
1: Yep, I remember Monster Blood was my favorite, um, but I need to reread it now.
0: Oh, it's all like as good and as bad as you'd hope it would be in hindsight. <laughs> so
1: uh, I, I said I'm not a fan of horror cinema because I, I don't like violence. You know, mm-hmm. I don't like aggressiveness and i'm european we're not into that you know american
0: <laughs> absolutely. stuff
1: so that i makes- like go- goosebumps because the stakes are never so high you know and it's yep. mostly psychological horror of you know you being a child and uh, the grown-ups not believing what you're telling
0: them absolutely oh is that my thing i'll close that yeah no i think all of my favorite stuff has that kind of like youthful uh lens to it i mean i are you afraid of the dark was a big tv show that got me into spooky stuff and uh was the same thing the 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 stakes are still like my favorite things to revisit because the stakes aren't super high and aren't like yeah i'm not huge into horror or violence i can't do gore i have a weak stomach for all that stuff so i'm pretty much Uh, jacked out (laughs) of all of it (laughs) i actually
1: don't i used to be a huge fan of exploitation cinema Stuff like cannibal holocaust and okay, yes, totally.
0: That, um, so (laughs) I am
1: not squeamish, but uh, it just feels, I don't know, soulless, you know, yeah, Uh, violence for the sake of violence,
0: absolutely. No, I think, uh, it's definitely, I have a lot of friends that are super into or have been super into those things, but it's just never been, never clicked with me. And, uh, yeah, I've always liked the weirder stuff, uh, whether it's in uh, movies or literature or anything else. So I definitely, I don't know. I, and I'm with you. I mean, I haven't watched a movie in so long at this point. And a lot of that is because of having kids and stuff, but podcasting has been like my main consumption of media for years now, at least like five or six years since I've been like a dad and a professional artist. And like, that's something that I wanted to talk to you about because you've made a uh, variety of different types of podcasts at this point <laughs> in your uh in your what i'll call brief career i mean how long when did you start your first podcast that is uh with darwin yeah uh, darwin was your first one right
1: yeah i started i think mid-september
0: of two years ago okay and from there like i'm just gonna kind of sum up and say that there's been a whole like just listening to that first hunk of episodes like there's a complete different show every like fifth show it seems like it seems like you evolved throughout that whole thing and the way that I first discovered you and uh, and like what you do was via Jordan from the Campfire Tales podcast and when I went from that to the dark I was like wow this guy has a breadth of ideas and uh, ways to look like it was really cool to see and it made it made sense, like it connected, but I was wondering, like, what's your view as far as like the progression of that to tracing owls that you're doing now?
1: Okay, so uh, we already talked about this. Um, Darwin's Deviations was something very weird that happened in my life. It was the first major creative endeavor in my life, and I started off the first episode thinking, "Wow, I'm gonna do a nice podcast about science about weird. Mm-hmm. Biological species and whatnot. Um, yes, I I did a script that was more you know serious toned because science always needs to be serious, and I just couldn't do it. I couldn't narrate that, so I inserted a bit of humor. It was pretty cringy. <laughs> I mean, it's cringe <laughs> to me. Most people like my first episode. I don't. Um, <laughs> but the more the I show, think it's great. <laughs> the more the show progressed. Thank you. Um, like in episode two. Uh, that was a turning point for me. Am I going to do a serious biological podcast or am I just going to be goofy and wacky and do random nonsense? And I had the brilliant idea because I was doing uh, a species called the wolverine frog, which has the amazing ability of retractable claws, Mm -hmm. And what what it actually does is breaks its own fingers so so the barbed, broken bone can protrude out of their fingertips.
0: Yeah, that is just so brutal. Like, it's crazy. And it does that how many times in a lifetime? Like, whenever it needs to? Oh, yeah,
1: whenever it needs to, yeah.
0: (laughs) Jesus, I just can't imagine living a life where that's my only defense is to destroy myself. But I guess that's pretty common in nature, right?
1: Yeah, and obviously it's named after, you know... Wolverine from X-Men comics. so I had the brilliant idea of making the episode uh, half biological half a nod to comic book characters and I had uh-huh. the brilliant idea of inserting of inserting a hundred X-Men characters inside the script just randomly and never acknowledging that. I, I no, just, I thought- I, I'd say the, the origin of this species is shrouded in mystique and stuff like that. <laughs>
0: I thought that was beautiful. It's like, and that's the, it, what you start to get into there and like becomes more prevalent throughout those episodes is that like almost self conversation that's going on where like, or, maybe self-conversation is not the right way to put it, but you can start telling that you're doing something for yourself or at least for like a very small group of, uh, I think at some point you've told me that you were just trying to make your best friend laugh. And that's my favorite. That's where my favorite art comes from is when you get a peek into like those uh, kind of almost be uh, in jokes, like those jokes that only you and your friends get. But like you start realizing that it's way more universal. Like uh, when I started listening to getting to like episode six, seven or eight when you start getting it into, I think uh, the Dracula monkey was the last one I listened to. Mm-hmm. And I was like, this seems like a turning point. And this se- like, I don't know. you, you oh, Do you okay. feel like you ever started like uh, becoming like, did it gain an audience? I guess is a, a weird question if you're uh, willing to answer it. But like, do you feel like when, if you did gain an audience or like, did you ever start thinking more about other people listening to it or having that influence the way it comes out?
1: So I did have an audience of maybe 25 to 30 people constantly. Awesome. Some of them I actually knew because we chatted. I have a cool story related okay. to that. So I like I, I stumbled upon one of my fans very in a very weird, very mean way. So I made a Facebook profile uh because I had the brilliant idea of doing troll marketing. I just add random people and troll them and be nasty <laughs> to them. That <laughs> was very nasty to this one guy. And he got very, very depressed. And then he started chatting with me and he's like, dude, I, I love your show and I've been listening to the, to it from the start. <laughs> I like, damn.
0: <laughs> wow. Wow. That's too funny. And do you think that like, t- one, is he still listening? Like, does he follow? Like, are, do you still talk to this person?
1: I haven't heard from him in a while, but I did uh, talk with him uh, until I ended my own show.
0: Totally. And how, like, what was the point where you were done with it? Like, was it just that, like, the joke was kind of done for you, or that you wanted no, to just say, so like, I, the,
1: I, I was very vocal about this. I don't know if you listen to the episode where I talk about this. Um,
0: I don't know. I So, I, yeah, I haven't listened to them all to be completely upfront with everybody. Uh, okay, I'm still. Okay. Yeah. So
1: uh, I should probably start from the beginning. The show I was making, as you already know, I was funneling my own subconsciousness into it. Mm-hmm. And my show was kind of an alchemical, magical experience for me. <laughs> Now that I look back to it, you know, it's not Absolutely. just y- making a product and making a podcast. As you say, I was making something for myself. I was also because we were in COVID and uh, me and my friends started working from home and okay. I would send her my podcast episodes every time I, I released an episode as essentially a chunk of my essence for her to experience.
0: <laughs> That's beautiful.
1: Yeah. So, uh, so as this was an alchemical experience, I was transferring my essence uh, into something, imprinting it into an audio photograph of sorts. Let's say I don't like calling it a podcast.
0: Um, I like audio photograph. That's really nice. yeah. Yeah. That's a beautiful image. My
1: intention, like I, I, whenever I talked about fossil organisms on my show and I was making fun of them of, uh. Imprinting their soft little blobby bodies in, into stone, so we may all laugh at them. That was what I was doing with my own show. You know, I was imprinting my my essence and my psyche in that point of time and space into something.
0: Absolutely. The more the more no. this
1: was, uh, you know, happening. The more this podcast became an entity for itself. And Absolutely. the more I, w- I was funneling myself into it. Uh, the more it became kind of a doppelganger mirror to my subconsciousness. And the more I started experiencing synchronicities in my life, where I don't know if I maybe picked up on cues in my life and then expressed them through my characters or whatnot, but stuff would happen in my show that would then happen in my real life or somehow be correlated with them. And by the end, uh, I was playing with these ideas of dreams and death. And throughout the course of the show, this character, Dr. Megalo, who was partially based on my grandfather and who I was constantly picking on throughout the show. um, Throughout the course of the show, I was teasing the death of this character or me killing that character. And what happened in my real life when I was planning the last episode, which would be like me trying to kill that character, my actual grandfather passed away from COVID. Wow.
0: Yeah. That's so, so that's that's big synchronicity. Yeah,
1: that's a huge synchronicity. That spooked me. I was like, how did, how did my show synchronize with this event? And also I had a prophetic dream. Uh, the same night my grandfather passed away, I had
0: a dream of him drowning in a lake. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's intense. That's intense. And I mean, do you, wow. Yeah. Do, do you think like without doing the show, like that synchronicity would have presented itself in a similar way? Like, do you think the the creative aspects of what you were doing is what kind of like communicated that with you? I really
1: don't know because as for prophetic dreams, I've had them throughout my life, okay. but like everybody has, you know, when you, when people talk about it, like I'm not an experiencer of the paranormal and I think it would be a spit in, in the face of real experiencers to say, Hey, I had prophetic dreams. Who doesn't? Yeah. But when yeah. I had them, they were very major. but um, This started seeping into my show because I was intentionally playing around with dreams and the more I played around with dreams on my show, the more I'd have prophetic dreams and in the end have the most prophetic of them
0: totally and it just it, it makes so much sense with like everything that I like to think about as far as uh where imagination and dreams I mean it's all kind of coming from the same spot so I mean you're playing you're playing with a live ammunition as it were in some ways like uh I I'm sure I know you've listened to a lot of the podcasts I've done so I'm sure you've heard me talk about Grant Morrison and I don't know if you've ever read his comics but one of the biggest things he did was kind of insert himself into one of the comics he was writing and uh, essentially like made himself ill via the like use use the comic to see how far he could take this idea and took it way too far and uh, that was a very life-changing thing for him when he formed the all of these ideas that I love as far as like uh, the way that we play with mythology and folklore and this what he refers to as the 2D world or as the uh, the imaginal is has real world implications like it has it can affect the, these big, big things in our own world and synchronicities like that just like really speak to me in a uh, connect that and i i mean yeah i do you feel like you're still in that same like are you still getting synchronicities outside since you've stopped doing darwin no, but no are still, because no, just completely
1: because you know from people who practice magic uh-huh. that you you can't do magic like on a whim in in a yeah. day you need to constantly ritualistically bring yourself to that point in time and space and that mindset to conjure something and while i was doing darwin's deviations i was i was kind of bringing myself into this headspace where i was tapping into something playing with archetypes because you already know the point of my show is the characters and the yeah. characters are archetypal personifications of different parts of my own psyche It's left vague in the show if my characters are actually characters, if they are talpas created by me, or if everything is happening in my head and I'm just talking to voices uh, of my own mind.
0: (laughs) I liked how you addressed that in uh, the second episode's commentary. Was that the second episode's commentary where you talk about that, right? That came out to, yeah, I I really enjoyed that and uh, very sincere and honest and something that like, we all have a voice in our head like we all hear it we all like everyone hears voices in their head no matter what they say like there is there is an other like that observes us or we observe or whatever you want to look however you want to look at it but like being able to talk about these things like the way you do and uh bring some comedic like some levity to it all is very nice and uh yeah i'm I'm really glad you're doing the commentaries with these new round it's been very eye-opening
1: yeah when i started the show i did not know that i wanted to do characters i just uh-huh. went with the flow that, that's the weird thing the whole show was unplanned a lot of things were unplanned but a lot of these easter eggs and connections and synchronicities you uh, see throughout the episodes uh, they just fell into place mostly unplanned that's and awesome. I, I, I just went with the flow and the more I went with the flow, the more I was getting these ideas, wow, I should make a new character pop out of my mind. The more I was doing these characters, the more I was compartmentalizing my, my own mind and kind of, as you said, the, this whole thing with Grant Morrison, I was using characters as kind of proxy action figures as a child would use action figures to act out something that they are uh, dealing with, you know, Absolutely. through, through archetypes.
0: Absolutely. That's a, So do you think you'll ever make content like this again? Like, do you think you'll ever get back into doing things that are a little bit more in the, uh, in the vein of Darwin? So
1: <laughs> I was thinking about that before um, recording this and I was thinking about the idea um when we talk about the paranormal, and uh, the uh, main thing with science and why you can't scientifically prove the paranormal is because science needs to be repeatable. Um, mm-hmm. y- you need to constantly uh, do the experiments and tests and constantly get the same results. How yep. can you replicate, reproduce, repeat something imaginal and something paranormal? Yeah, And the way I feel about- work. Yeah, the way I feel about my show, like uh, this was something that was going on and on throughout months. I was conjuring this mind space. Yep. And when it all just faded away, I'm left back with my own self out of that magical headspace, let's say. And I now question myself how I was ever able to do something like that. <laughs> I, I can't replicate it anymore.
0: No. That makes a lot of sense, and is uh, it speaks to the sincerity that really does lie in those batch of episodes. That is really special, and uh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Did, uh, talking about the ending of it, like, did this play into your formulation as far as uh, th- your thoughts or? the formulation of thoughts that you have on the gaia theory and things like that that you've kind of become <laughs> known for as far as uh, i i had never really heard of it it based in the paranormal lens until jordan told me about it via you and now i was like oh that makes a lot of sense and is really cool and since then i feel like i've been hearing a lot more about it and obviously i think that's because of not only maybe you you're paying more
1: it, attention to it now
0: totally but I think it also is because I I consume a lot of this stuff and when an idea like I've heard a lot of different ideas all the time from a bunch of different angles about paranormal and weird and like when something sticks it's not only the idea but it's usually the people behind the idea and that kind of fascinates me and like I think because you are part of the reason that it's stuck in my brain and i'm interested in mm-hmm. how it got into your brain and like how you decided to start talking about it and whether darwin was a part of that
1: yeah it it was a part of it so i studied biology and i taught biology studying biology i never was introduced the, to the concept of the gaia hypothesis but i did you know study every part of biology compartmentalized and divided Okay. And when you, you when you study all this divided stuff like anatomy divided from morphology div- divided from physiology divided from ecology you start kind of connecting all the dots together mm-hmm. especially in the 4th year when we started to learn organic evolution because evolution is a unification of every discipline in biology essentially. Okay. And you start connecting the dots, all of these dots, everything you learned, you just start making connections. Um, When we were were talking uh, a moment ago before recording about your um, son uh, learning these labels and learning the world through labels. Yes. I feel like there is a certain point until you can learn all the labels that you need to uh, maybe transcend that. You can keep learning and learning and accumulating labels in your head uh, facts or and trivia but at a certain point you need to start connecting the dots because the magic is in that in-between in between space and the ether between all those labels
0: absolutely
1: the labels That's are beautiful. there the labels are there just to be kind of waypoints or whatever you know you remember yep. a label and then you go from there to other directions, you know?
0: Totally. And it's one of those things that like, I mean obviously it gets pretty out there um, I don't know way bigger than I understand scientifically but labeling is such a um, distinct form of observation and there's this whole thing whether like I like to think about it in the paranormal lens about how observation changes the whole event like you know whether it's the co-creation theory or even like the part that you've talked about the Gaia hypothesis that, that we play I loved when you said that the paranormal is a lock and we're the key. And like, I, I really wonder about whether, um, it, how that all kind of connects and how it like, how it works. If, if we are the key and the paranormal is the lock, like how much of that do we have control of over via labeling? Like how much ca- can we ever break it down into that, like provable point or that scientific, uh, replication that you were talking about a minute ago so
1: I I wanted to mention this why I use the Gaia hypothesis to explain the paranormal even though it has nothing to do with the paranormal the thing is uh, you if you want to scientifically prove something you need to stick to science because science is 100% fact you can't refute science because that would be refuting mother nature and that would be refuting Gaia which is a Mm -hmm. big no-no Yeah. So the thing is, science is 100% fact, but uh, science as a whole is 1% of the universal fact because there is a lot of stuff that science cannot tap into and that science is blind to. But everything science can see or grasp, you know, is fact eventually. Mm -hmm. So if you want to um, explain something that is more metaphysical and much less defined and more vague... And fit it into something that is very well researched and defined and and um, legitimized y- y- which side uh, will be the more malleable? Will it be the science or the paranormal? Obviously, you need to um adapt the paranormal onto the science which is very rigid. Mm-hmm. So I go from the fact that Gaia theory is fact it's not no longer a, h- a hypothesis it's a fact. So yep. how does the paranormal then fit into the uh, overarching Gaia theory which is a universal fact? Yep. And then we go into consciousness like if if the planet earth is a superorganism composed of every organism on this planet materially and objectively and establishes this metabolism and control system um, where it is a self-regulating closed system, let's say. What about consciousness then? If I am a constituent of a Gaian entity and I am conscious, is my consciousness my own or is it a consciousness of Gaia?
0: Yeah, that is that's just one of the most beautiful questions you can ask yourself, right? I mean, that's why I think one of the things that the guy that the way that you talk about it, it sounds like it sounds like it's a positive look on all of this stuff that has so much negativity wrapped up into it. Like it makes like I I've come at this stuff way more from a spiritual and a philosophical lens a lot of the time, and one of the things I love to do is like listen. I love listening to like straight up philosophy podcasts and people that talk about this stuff or like religious study podcasts. I've been, I've listened to a lot of those recently because they talk about all the same stuff that we're talking about just through different lenses and the consistency in those conversations are all the things that you've been highlighting about the Gaia hypothesis that it's all here that we don't need to go outside of this planet or our reality to uh answer these giant questions or not answer these giant questions but like experience the beneficial parts of these giant questions if that makes sense um but yeah i mean do you do you fluctuate at all anymore is the gaia of what you just said that you know it's no longer a hypothesis is a fact. Like, do you ever question this anymore? Like, is this still a <laughs> uh, a, a a thing you like to play with, or are you completely hundred percent in on this one? Okay,
1: so I can question on the nature of the paranormal. I cannot question on the nature of nature itself. Okay, nature That's... is a monolith, and you cannot change nature.
0: <laughs> this is <But> true. <laughs> I, I
1: can question. Okay, is Gaia maybe connected to the paranormal? Is the paranormal an adaptation of the human mind? Is it something internal within ourselves or is it an external force that co-creates with us, you know, Um, or is it a force from Gaia or is it a cosmic force that is much beyond Gaia or is it all bullshit and (laughs) storytelling? Is it just uh, an adaptation of the human mind where uh, we, psychologically adapt to the reality of our existence via storytelling and
0: mythology.
1: I don't yeah. know. I really don't no. know, but I don't
0: uh, think anybody does.
1: <laughs> but you, you cannot refute nature. You can only try, try to fit the, the non-scientific into the scientific. Yeah. And that that, that's where sense. philosophy comes in. I think, I think philosophy is very important for science, but the more science progresses, the less philosophical it is, and the more nuts and bolts material it is, you know. that That's a reason why I started Darwin's Deviations, because in college, like, I'd learn about these species and everything, but you'd learn very sterilized, boring stuff. And there is no sense of wonder, there's no sense of curiosity there of transforming these beings into archetypes, you know? Yeah. I think a lizard which sheds its own skin is more memorable as an archetype as I did in the episode as I conveyed it. And I mean, this is fact. They tried constantly to uh, capture the lizard. It would just shed its own skin as a big fuck you to the scientists and go off on its way. Yeah, that was amazing. That's a trickster archetype.
0: I Absolutely. think this
1: is, this being is more memorable if you think of it from the perspective of a trickster archetype than from the perspective of Gekkolepis Megalepis discovered <laughs> in, in 2013, whatever, blah, blah, blah.
0: I think there's something to that worldview that has a natural uh, or imbues a natural state of wonder that I think the, the world over could use at this point I mean like I it's funny you uh we don't have to go too far into this but you the other day uh in a, a conversation we were having told me that uh animist you were warned that animist is a is a problematic word in certain ways. And like Mm -hmm. uh, attribute or attributing a soul and these things to inanimate objects and stuff can be a way to put down the way that uh, indigenous people or past people have looked at the world and say that they're less than us because we're materialist and scientific and all that stuff. And am I understanding that correctly? Is that what the. uh, the
1: Yeah. And also like there's this overarching idea that animism is the most primitive form of belief system and then there is polytheism and then there is monotheism and I'm thinking monotheism is the most primitive, you know?
0: That's what I'm saying. Like (laughs) there's something so magical and something that's inherently feels right about something that's animistic. And like, that's what like,
1: yeah, because monotheism is very reductionist and demystifies the world. Oh, why is th- this plant like this because of God? Oh, why yeah. is this lizard so miraculous because
0: of God? Damn. Totally. <laughs> I, I find the things that offer the easy answer like that just never seem to be right. I've been listening to uh, Jeffrey Kripal talk a lot. I think I've talked to you about this recently. And one of the things he says all the time from his, he's a religious studies uh, academic full teacher, all that stuff. Like real way smarter. I have to look up like 30 words every time he talks, I feel like. But um he goes back to that there's something inherently depressing about facts. Like if if it's inherently depressing, it's probably the right thing. But that doesn't mean that there's not an overall positivity to what's going on, and that we need to reinsert more positivity, or else we're just gonna get into this materialist reductionist loop that we're constantly in. And I feel like the way that you talk about the Gaia High hypothesis or all of these ideas there is this positivity behind it that like gets lost and i think part of that positivity to tie this back to darwin comes from that like kind of trickster element that you really do embrace and i think has always been embraced through or should always looked at being embraced through the paranormal or any of this stuff i mean oh yeah I,
1: i was trying to embrace it through biology that's something nobody ever does Nobody yeah. will will celebrate a lizard for, for screwing over scientists. Because <laughs> e- even the scientists who were studying the lizard had to insert a blurb into their uh, scientific uh, study where they described the species that uh, we need to uh, learn more about the skin regeneration mechanism so we may, what, sell lotions.
0: Fuck yeah, that. that. No, seriously. the lizard
1: is going to evade capture... As as a big fuck you and live its own life because it existed for millions of years before we even existed. So surely it was not put on this planet for us
0: no and like so this is probably not much less of a uh humanist type of way to look at but like if when you first said all of that like what hits me is like oh that seems like some sort of lesson nature is trying to teach us that we're not supposed to catch every fucking thing and like we're supposed to let this thing go and some things are better like not caught or observed or studied or whatever and like i know that's a, a i don't know it's probably not less uh human centric way to look at it but like it's just crazy to me that those, there's these basic like lessons in everything and every interaction that we have with nature. And like, it seems to be missed on a lot of us or a lot of culture.
1: Well, I, I would (laughs) say that's a very anthropocentric (laughs) viewpoint.
0: I know, I know it is. I know we've, (laughs) we've talked about this. I have trouble with that. (laughs) Maybe the lizard
1: is not there for our exploitation, but maybe it is there. So we may learn something. Um, as I said, nature is a monolith. It it exists for itself. It exists independently of our understanding of it. Yes, I always say, like, totally. if, if we go extinct and lose all our scientific knowledge, that changes nothing in nature. Because yeah. science, uh, uh, people like to tell me, like, it's science. Thus, it's fact. But the uh, what they think of as fact, as ultimate truth, is nature. It's not science. Nature is a monolith and science is a systematical uh, discipline of our cataloging and understanding of science
0: and it's, it's all just the obser- observation. <laughs> no, yeah, I knew what yeah. you meant. Yeah. But it's all just our observation of nature. Like it's all like everything that we know as fact is just us observing the world around us in a way, in one way or the other. And the tools that we have to observe the world getting more, uh, particular and specialized. And I, I think there's, do you think that And I think I know the answer to this, but do you think that that changes the world? Like, do you think that like our, you know, uh, the way that we observe the world scientifically right now changes nature at its core?
1: Yeah, per the Gaia hypothesis, uh, the living beings of this planet change the non-living habitat, which then changes the living beings and so on and so on. It's a constant cycle.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's beautiful. It's, and it, it's horrifying. a co-creation. <laughs>
1: it's a co-creation cycle. Like Gaia, as an entity, started off uh, when life started. It, it was just a soup in the ocean of bacteria and whatnot, and it was mostly mm. anaerobic life forms. But when life forms started, you know, uh, utilizing. The sunlight to do photosynthesis and then uh, expelling oxygen and now there was a lot of oxygen killing a lot of these anaerobic organisms they needed to adapt to utilize this oxygen and utilize it for better respiration and now these um, aerobic organisms can breathe more efficiently than anaerobic and this led to uh, almost the complete extinction of all life on earth <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> it, it's very wonderful like it, there's a lot of things that go into the evolution of life on this earth but uh, always it's uh, the the environment is constantly changing and thus it changes life life needs to adapt and uh, thus life adapts into new forms which now change the environment into a new form and so on and so on and so on it's uh it's a symphony of evolution.
0: That's beautiful. And at this point, I mean, the funnest part of all of this to me is throwing in that, like, the paranormal is part of that symphony. And I, I know you just kind of touched on it a minute ago, but what directly, how do you see the paranormal really factoring in? Like, do you see it more as a tool that Gaia is using to communicate with us or more of a, like, Not byproduct, but just kind of like a another thing that exists here with us as far as, uh, you know, whether it's corporeal or not, but just the paranormal is something that is uh, separate or how does it become a part of the Gaia, I guess, is what I'm asking. (laughs) I
1: mean, dude, I, I had like two hour sessions with people just about that.
0: <laughs> I know. How do I convince them? You, uh, you, don't, you, you don't need to. Uh, we can refer them to those conversations. No, sure. no. Um,
1: <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know, but I can speculate. So either Gaia is so trying to Before you jump in, us, okay?
0: just g- give me your favorite speculation and give me the one that you don't think is likely at all. Like, give me one that you are like, this is the one I like the best. And give me one where you're like, uh, this is probably bullshit, but it's in my brain anyway. Okay,
1: that so the, the, the one <laughs> I like the most is the idea that Gaia is harnessing us as gateways to other dimensions because we have evolved... To a point where we are tapping into a social unconsciousness and also an imaginal realm of existence, which I know you love most yeah, of all.
0: I love it. Yep, so if, totally.
1: <laughs> if we are tapping into an imaginal realm where we can now alchemically uh, observe nature and transfer it into an imaginal form. Mm-hmm. Of course, Gaia wants to utilize that because it opens up another dimension to her existence. And this is not me pulling stuff out of my ass. The whole point of evolution of life on Earth is to open new dimensions for life itself. So yeah. I love the um analogy of algae. And I dedicated okay. Darwin's Deviations episode I think 12 to this. It was my longest episode I ever made. It was about the evolution of multicellularity, which evolved 25 times in the tree of life
0: independently. Holy shit. Really?
1: Yeah. So there is some cosmic force that is forcing organisms to become more and more complex. It's not that one ancestor evolved multicellularity and then all multicellular organisms uh, got that trait from that ancestor. No, it's 25 different times independently. Whoa. And why, let's say, green algae evolved multicellularity? There's a unicellular algae that just lives its life alone, but that single cell needs to take care of itself to ensure that it can feed and survive and, and reproduce. And all these functions just need to be done by that cell. But if they form colonies together, now they have a whole group where they are uh, much more efficient. So they can, as a group, go to a part of the water where there's more sunlight. And as a group, as a giant organism of hundreds of cells, they uh, can evade their usual predators who now can't, you know, swallow a whole colony. Wow. But this opens... This opens up new dimensions. They evade their old predators, but now they are susceptible to new predators and new types of ecological factors. So they have transcended to a superorganism type existence, let's say, and, wow. need, to, and need to interact with other superorganisms. So uh, the most primitive colonies, all the cells are identical. They just live together. But all the cells, if you separate them apart, they can live alone, you know, but yeah. the more these colonies evolved, the more the cells became specialized. Wow. Because if you, if you have a corporation and I work in a corporation, you're not going to have every worker do the same exact tasks and all of the tasks that are needed for that corporation to survive. No. You're going to specialize everybody for a certain task. Absolutely. So now, that now these uh, cells are giving up their individuality for the good life. They specialize for a certain function, they lose their other functions. Some cells cannot reproduce ever. Their whole wow. life is to do photosynthesis to, to feed the rest of the colony. And, and uh, the more they specialize, the more they are dependent on the whole system but the uh, more they are opening a new dimension of existence for the whole system to exist
0: that's amazing and that's consistent throughout biology that uh that tendency to co- towards complexity yes wow that's amazing and really kind like talk about a wonder inspiring idea like that's awesome that's something that i've never really uh kind of
1: I mean, you, you as a person, you're a collective consciousness of millions and millions of cells, which are all individual organisms, but uh, who cannot, can no longer live independently because they have traded away the good, uh, the individuality for the good life. They have specialized for certain tasks, but you know, if you think about it, is your single cell of say your lung uh, conscious of you as the super organism controlling it? Uh
0: Uh-huh that's i mean is it <laughs> what is your uh what is your thoughts as far as consciousness like do you have a specific thing you subscribe to as far as like a a mana or you know a s- specific way of thinking of where it all originates from
1: i'm being becoming more open towards monism the idea yeah. everything is one and that there is yeah, only I- one
0: so the uh, last thing I listened to, and I'm not going to talk a lot about this cause I'll sound like a dummy, but uh, again with Jeffrey Kripal, he goes into his ideas of dual aspect monism and uh, the idea that like we are the splitter that there there's one world and everything is one, but we separate that world into the physical and the mental. And we are the thing that makes the dualism. And I was like, I, when he explained it in the way like, it just made so much sense. And like, it's one of those things that it's like when I first heard you explain the guy, hypothesis. hypothesis like resonated in, like I felt it vibrate inside me. <laughs> I was like, okay, there's something to that. And like, monism is one of those words I feel like I look up what it means every three months because I'm like am I using this right am I thinking about this right like yeah <laughs> all of these like bigger terms I've heard so many different people use in so many different ways and I'm like what is right like ontological is one of those words I hear thrown around all the time and I'm like which one is right like who's using this word correctly <laughs> like but uh but yeah I think I'm 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 becoming more of that way is, is the Gaia hypothesis part of the reason that's opened you up to that way of thinking?
1: Yeah, it is. I mean, it's not the Gaia hypothesis. Like, I was thinking about this even when I was doing that episode about uh, evolution of multicellularity. I did not know that it was called Gaia hypothesis. I just knew that there is some kind of force that is constantly forcing matter to become more and more complex.
0: Yeah. I... The other day, I'm going to keep referencing, we talk all the time uh, for the listeners outside of this, and I I think uh, Vuk's become my favorite person to, uh, when I open up my directed messages and see that I have like eight messages from him, I'm like, okay, cool, this is going to be a fun uh, fun couple hours to think about some stuff. And the other day we were talking about uh, how or you kind of threw the idea at me as far as the way that a, let's say, alien abduction, for example, becomes so insular. They're taking us out of nature and, you know, putting us in a a womb or an incubator yeah. or further insulizing us. Like, that was something that really rung true with me and kind of is resonating when you're talking about this part of the uh, complexity. Like, do you think the insularity allows for more complexity or does that make sense? Yeah,
1: uh, so we we were talking and I was telling you how, how cells evolved from prokaryotes to eukaryotes.
0: Uh, yeah, I wanted you to cover uh, that part because I would have sounded like so dumb if I tried to
1: <laughs> so, are essentially bacteria, cyanobacteria, RK uh, bacteria, whatever. They don't have a uh, nucleus and they don't have okay. organelles. So that's the most primitive cell. You have the cell with the, the cytoplasm, and then you have a cell membrane and usually they have cell walls because all bacteria have cell walls. Mm-hmm. Um, now, uh, you can only do uh, chemical, biochemical processes efficiently enough in, in those circumstances because this is a whole soup that is hom- homogeneous, and all these things are going on uh, in that same space, you know? Okay, yeah. Now, as uh, cells uh, evolved to be more complex, the parts of their uh, membranes started to... Uh, migrate towards the inside of the cell, uh, creating these compartments, which are organelles, essentially. And in these Mm -hmm. organelles, you have very concentrated accumulations of certain enzymes or other chemicals, which are there to do a certain task at that specific place and time. It is much more efficient to do uh, uh, the task, let's say, of respiration inside a mitochondria, than inside the cytoplasm of the whole cell, because inside the mitochondria, you have uh, the organelle composed of two different membranes, the outer and inner one, and the inner has these invaginations. That's what they're called. Uh, that form, uh. crists, whatever. They have these respiratory enzymes on on their inner side. So gotcha. Uh, respiration is done in the inside of this membrane, and the inside of this particular membrane is just for that task, and that makes uh, respiration more efficient for these organisms, because they need much more energy in order uh, for the whole system to function, because the whole system is more complex.
0: That makes a lot of sense. That is, yeah, no, that makes so much sense. And you related that to the, uh, paranormal or to, I, I just, I wish I had it in front of me. The message you sent me to start mm-hmm. this conversation was one of my favorite little one liners you've sent. And, uh, I can't remember what it was exactly. So like, I, I, I was,
1: to- <laughs> I was alluding to, uh, before, like, uh, you know, fairy lore and fairies would kidnap people and take them to fairyland and whatnot, mm-hmm. but they wouldn't kidnap them via vehicles. And now we are having alien abductions being performed via UFOs. So w- why did we start imagining this middleman the more yeah. we are uh, confining ourselves in into concrete buildings now? Compared to antique times. We are distancing ourselves away from Gaia, from nature. And we are um, essentially, well, we are essentially trying to isolate ourselves from the ecological factors of nature. So we may more efficiently be human or modern humans. Yeah. (laughs) Because now, now we are not prone to to thunderstorms, you know, and to hail and whatever, because yep. we 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 live in houses and apartment buildings and can do whatever we want. So I'm thinking, like like are aliens abducting us in these vehicles to essentially isolate our us from the influences of the outer world for certain certain purpose? And I don't think physically, mentally, maybe because we are yeah. now we are now more mentally trying to isolate ourselves from nature
0: definitely
1: so if if you, if you want to do something to us i don't know what's the purpose of alien abductions is it for us to learn something to experience something but if you want to be very efficient and precise in in conveying that experience you need to isolate your subject from the uh, ecological
0: influences and it is interesting the consistency that isolation, uh, or the role that isolation plays throughout all paranormal or even just scary experiences. Okay, even like you—you
1: so, you reminded me now of a cool thing you know about Jeff the talking mongoose. Oh yeah. So that family was isolated on the Isle of Man, and they were totally. so bored out of their minds that they—I don't know what Jeff was. Was it a talpa? <laughs> <laughs> but
0: they conjured this And he was fun. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, there's a few uh, stories like that that have struck me in that way. And I, and like, again, like, I. I go back like I so I really like the idea of thinking that there was an actual like spirit mongoose living in those people's stove and telling them that was like he told them the town gossip or some shit and like there Mm -hmm. was all kinds of weird like yeah I love that I think that's great and like in my like weird like I'm absorbing these stories for a creativity brain I'm like yeah that's what but like at the end of the day how that all functions Tolpa sounds great to me. Like I think that there's definitely uh, something to that, <laughs> but the isolation factor is something that's got to play a role, no matter how you look at it. <laughs> like- uh, I, I think,
1: however, you you want to frame it, that family experienced a uh, collective religious experience.
0: Yeah, that's and absolutely. I,
1: I'm not going to say it's a delusion because I think it's a paranormal experience. I think they conjured up a shared imaginary friend. Is totally. it a talpa? I don't know because talpas manifest physically, or is this just a psychological thing?
0: Absolutely. And to go back to what I was saying a second ago about the uh, the dual aspect monism, and excuse me, the idea that we're filters, like part of what Kripal loves so much about that is that it allows for the corporeal corporeal entities and the, uh, like he feels like writing it all off as mental and psychological or psychedelic is a disservice to the whole thing. And I kind of agree. Like I kind of like, I don't, yeah, obviously we know each other enough to know I'm far from any kind of flesh and blood or nuts and bolts or anything like that. But to, to say that none of this has any kind of corporeal aspect to it is kind of, disingenuous i feel like in certain ways and i feel like that's a it's an interesting you know obviously uh someone like uh jeffrey kripal's thought about these things way more than me and is way better at talking about them but i like the world view that like you know jeff the mongoose is totally their imaginary friend but you know they may have seen an actual mongoose or some shit at some point sure like it, it it doesn't one doesn't discount the other if that makes sense yeah Uh, As
1: for Jeff, the talking mongoose, I I use it to explain some similar um, cases. Let's say Indrid Cold. Okay. Now, Indrid Cold is not the grinning man. It's not that uh, weird uh, grinning figure that those two boys saw. Indrid Cold is Indrid Cold, (laughs) who was uh, seen and contacted by um, Woody Derenberger. Now, I think Woody Derenberger actually had uh, the the initial encounter that it was a genuine paranormal experience, but later on, he became what is known as an alien contactee, and we know um, how that went for other contactees, especially George Adamski and that bunch Yep. He was a more late, late bloomer in the contactee movement. But I think he genuinely, I don't know what this is, but I, I think it's a very complex set of circumstances. The dude had a genuine paranormal experience that kind of allowed him to tap into this, this what you call imaginal creative thing. Yes. And then he started creating the imaginary friend but this yes. imaginary friend is not the same entity that he saw during his initial encounter. This is an imaginary friend, uh, Talpa, a collective religious figure, whatever, that he shared with his family. And his yes. family constantly kept saying that Indrid Cold is real and that they have these adventures and meetings with Indrid Colds, But nobody, nobody else had them. It is something shared between the family members.
0: Yeah, no, that's super interesting. And I think there's something too that. Like, I was listening to someone speak about spiritualism from the early 1900s. And, well, apparently it's still a thing that happens today and whatnot and, and in certain realms. But they were talking a lot about the hoaxing and the idea that, like, Hoaxing doesn't discredit what's actually happening. Sometimes you have to put a little bit of imaginal juice out there to attract the other or the the phenomenon, whether it be in like a séance or a you know all those things. And it when you're talking about things like you know things that are associated with the Men in Black and Grey Barker and all those classic hoaxers and stuff that like you know would. Uh, prank call John Keel and are notorious for putting fake shit out there. Like, were they not only doing that, but also kind of uh, performing some sort of ritual that was yeah. encouraging more weirdness at the same time? <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. I don't know if you're aware of Alan Greenfield.
0: Uh Yes, totally. Okay,
1: so Alan Greenfield ha- has the story. I didn't listen to him personally say it, but other people were telling his story, where he'd... Mm-hmm. Uh, Call in a UFO encounter, a fake one, and then throughout the the throughout the whole week after that, the whole town would call in with UFO encounters because he would just so wild. Yeah, he he would just plant the seeds uh, of the paranormal experience. Now, I don't know if you heard about those things, uh, especially the spiritualism movement from Jordan, because me and Jordan have been talking about this for quite a while. And I
0: knew he was super into it and we've, we've talked about it, but it was from an interview on that weird studies podcast that I've shared with you before. Um, that is, it, there was a photographer who uh, she put out a book called the book of seance, Shannon Targa Targa, Targa? I don't know how to say her name. I'm horrible mm-hmm. with that stuff. Um, but she uh, pretty much photographed the current spur- spiritualism movement that still exists in upstate New York and stuff. Uh, this was a couple of years ago, I think like back in 20s. I don't know early aughts or something like that um but so I talked to Jordan but that was the main thing she was talking a lot about how a lot of what she experienced like people would be like that's hoaxes but a lot of what she experienced was like no this is not a hoax but the strongest stuff came after the obvious hoaxes if that makes sense
1: so me and Jordan have been looking into the Philip experiment have you heard of that
0: oh yeah one of my favorites
1: Okay, so you already know. Explain
0: it, though, but explain it because I don't know. Very, very briefly.
1: So I think it was in the 70s in in Canada, they were doing uh, an experiment where they would organize a seance of people to conjure up a fake ghost. They created a whole history of the ghost and his name and who he was when he died, blah, blah, blah. And then they would just play around and try to communicate with this fictional ghost. Everybody knew it was fictional. For two years, nothing happened because uh, they were in a very well lit room and, you know, it was experimental conditions. But once mm. they started uh, changing the environment to be more close to classical spiritualist seances, you know, candlelight and and dimly, writ- dimly writ- lit room and people in a circle and stuff like that. Once they changed the environment, then spooky shit started to happen, and these people (laughs) were conjuring real paranormal phenomena, mostly uh, poltergeist phenomena. And even they would, uh, during one summer when they were pausing the experiment, these people would uh, carry the uh, the paranormal phenomena back home with themselves.
0: It's the uh, hitchhiker effect. Wow, the hitchhiker, yeah. But it's, uh, it's
1: not a real ghost. They were tapping into an imaginal, uh, fictional ghost that they created.
0: But it gave the avenue to whatever the phenomena was. It gave the phenomena a way to uh, – something to utilize. It's I, I feel like it's a <laughs> – the phenomena is like an opportunist. Like it's going to take what it can get. Yeah, can get yeah. It, so like w-
1: when we're talking about Woody Derenberger, like – If he really saw some kind of entity who introduced Mm -hmm. himself as Mr. Cold, because Indrid, he did not introduce himself as Indrid. That was later, right? Yeah. So later on, uh, Woody inspired by this and tapping into something and uh, being bombarded by the media and whatnot. I don't know what happened, but he started conjuring something else based on this character.
0: Totally. And he created a whole myth that like still exists to this day. Like he was lanulose and all that stuff, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And uh, Tanya Derenberger still claims to have encounters with. That's right. Though I think she said like a few years ago, he died in some kind of UFO crash. I was on a live chat with with, um, Tanya. I entered the live chat. It was from another podcast. Just to ask her a few questions. I asked her, did she ever have um sleep paralysis and she said uh-huh. that she did and sometimes during the sleep paralysis that Andred would visit her so oh, wow. apart from being uh, what the Derenbergers say an alien from lanulos or w- what i kind of link to let's say an imaginal talpa being or whatever mm-hmm. it is all it also seems to be a sleep paralysis entity It seems to be a lot of things assuming this same role and same character.
0: That's the stuff that just makes me think it's all has to do. I mean, dreaming is just part of the imagination. And I, I love like, so, I mean, I got back into all this stuff when I had kids because I started getting heavy back into like, spirituality and philosophy and stuff because i wanted to have some sort of a semblance of something to say to my uh offspring when they're like what the fuck is wrong with this place or like what 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 is all of this about or like ask those weird questions that kids eventually ask and i found like stories like this are what got that wonder uh really dripping in my brain like that's the stuff like it, this is the type of stuff that like inspires that kind of like idea that this is a spiritual experience and is more than just like a I guess spiritual is a weird loaded word but like these experiences are purposeful and are more than just like spooky things that happen really oh
1: yeah and I I, want to like say Tanya Derenberger is a very nice lady and we're yeah. not saying here that any of this is a hoax or ima- no, imagined no. or whatever. No, we're saying this is yeah. a genuine paranormal experience, and some the Derenbergers were touched by something and tapped into yes. something and and conjured up something that they may be interpreted as lanyulogians, let's say. Yep. But um, it it allowed them to like the book that uh, that Woody wrote uh, Visitors from lanulos. Isn't that uh-huh. similar to how I creatively tapped into something and created a podcast that I cannot replicate anymore? Or Absolutely. you constantly making art that you, you ask yourself, how did I make that and how did yeah. that come into being? <laughs>
0: No. And that's what, like hearing that story about, uh, being visited in her sleep paralysis episodes, it's more affirming to me of how real it, the imaginal elements of it make it more real to me. Like yeah. I never, when I'm using words like imaginal or mythology or mythology, like those are words to me that don't have any less like weight than as materialist words or like the things that we can see and touch like i really am all in on the belief as far as uh the stuff in our brains uh, and i guess it goes into the co-creation and all that stuff but like we definitely have way more power in these weird mushy electrical brains than we know and like what whether it's like uh something like gaia's consciousness kind of working through us or i think there's something to that idea of oneness and like the paranormal and things like uh an entity like injury cold being experienced physically uh and otherworldly spiritually. Or, and spiritually yeah and spiritually yeah. exactly that's the word like like it it reflects that dualism that makes this so special like i love that we are just kind of a really weird dichotomy of like flesh and spirit. Like, I think it's what makes humans the thing that can experience these things. I I I think
1: ultimately it is irrelevant. If say Indrid cold (laughs) is a sleep paralysis entity, or if he's an alien from Lanulos. I believe that these things are essentially entities, but in the form of ideas and concepts that totally. live within a social unconsciousness. They live in the ether that connects people together. And uh, unlike biological entities, which are prone to um, environmental factors, as I said, and evolution of biological organisms takes millions and millions of years, the evolution of uh, an organism that transcended into a maybe cultural and sociological existence as a living concept is much more exponential and you you can change the form of this being within years you don't need millions of years and eons
0: cultural evolution will lead to regular evolution right like that's the like and you can just make it happen way faster (laughs) so that makes
1: do you know essentially what
0: enzymes are Yeah, I mean, probably not well enough (laughs) as I should. (laughs) So so the point of
1: enzymes is that you have a protein that is structured in a certain way that it can do a certain task. And uh, why enzymes are very important for biological organisms is because uh, if you leave these chemicals in their native state without any enzymes, it will take such a long time and requires so much energy for anything to even happen for these wow. atoms and molecules to even interact with each other. But you have the protein in the form of an enzyme that catches all these molecules and, and either connects them together or separates them does a certain task. It's an entity. It's like a le- tiny little nano robot that does a certain task of, Um, exponentially, um, how would I say it, making a chemical process be more faster uh, and be more efficient. So enzymes do that on a chemical level, but uh, don't we, aren't we kind of enzymes that are maybe uh, taking uh, these objective realities and transforming them into imaginal realities where they can yes. more exponentially evolve and change and adapt.
0: I completely um, agree.
1: It's all alchemy on many yeah. levels of existence. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> Dude, this is 100% uh, what I was hoping for. And I'm really stoked that uh, this is where we where we ended up on it, this part of the conversation. Because I think that there's like... and. To tie this back to what we started talking about with Darwin and everything, there's two sides that I think are the most like what does it for me the most with all this stuff, and that's the wonder, which we were just talking about, and the kind of absurd trickster element and the humor, and like I think part of what just started that conversation where we were talking about uh, hoaxes and things or like uh, keel in general. The humor he injects which like you know might not always be the most appropriate or like whatever like it, it's part of it like the the way that plain writing style is one of the reasons his is around and still looked up to so much and i think like the fact that you're offering that humorous look at not only like the uh, actual critters that are wonder inspiring on this you uh, planet, but also the paranormal, and like kind of taking a little bit of a, a jab at it in certain ways is really something that's missing in a lot of what is going on. I, I, I think you uh, you should continue with those things somehow. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you mean uh, doing the characters I did, or or just discussing these topics,
0: just both, and like the way that you kind of, I mean. I just I think that you have a very unique perspective on this stuff and how you arrive at it and communicate it, and I just uh, I really appreciate the humorous uh, aspect that you bring to it as well. I think that's something that can be a little bit uh, sorely missing in the realm of the weird, as it were.
1: I mean, isn't the paranormal a trickster force in itself? I can't. I can't understand ufologists who are very nuts and bolts who uh-huh. reject anything paranormal and want to say, Oh, these are alien crafts, you know, flying in the sky with propulsion systems. Uh, I'm trying to emulate a yeah. uh, <laughs> Stanton Friedman there, but um, <laughs> whatever, if you ask, this is the problem. If you ask the experiencers, their experiences are fucking weird. And it's always totally. that these entities Or even UFOs are playing mind games with them. A person sees Uh a UFO and feels that the UFO saw them back. And then the UFO starts swaying like a pendulum and hypnotizing them. You know, (laughs) you can say, oh, that's all technology and science. But come on, dude, there is a trickster element to that. Somebody wants to take a picture of a UFO. it, It just goes away or becomes blurry or whatever
0: those are like the less weird cases too, which is just like when you really start diving into like, and on all levels of weird, like there's a lot of just like batshit, like conspiracy style type, uh, experience or stories out there that scare me in a whole different level of, you know, like again, like the sure plenty of what they experience is real and everything, but it's taken to a very scary place very quickly. And I think that, uh, yeah, I, it's one of those things that, like just looking at the baseline weirdness, like you were saying, like just the way that these things tend to communicate with the, with the the observer. it's yeah, it's way too weird to just be i mean, no are it you
1: just, are you aware of the Betty Andreessen affair?
0: Yeah, oh, Totally.
1: Babe. So it's yeah. a normal alien abduction, but then she goes into another place where she sees these beings with stock eyes. And then she goes on top of a pyramid with a 15 to, a 15 foot tall phoenix bird that explodes into flames. And out of the ashes emerges a gray worm that tells her, We have something to tell you, but we'll tell you <laughs> later in your life. Totally. <laughs> so, That's... you know, it's a very high strangeness experience. Um, and the phoenix bird situation is left out in many alien abductions uh, books, especially Bud Hopkins. I I read Missing Time. I think I remember Bud Hopkins did not um, acknowledge the be- Phoenix Bird situation because he was very nuts and bolts and he wanted everything to be just aliens abducting people and doing nasty surgeries. And whenever somebody would share an experience that is high strangeness he'd say oh that's a false memory implanted into the experiencer by Uh, the
0: graves you know gotcha yeah yeah that's that's a little dubious (laughs) to say the least no there's a constant it seems to be shedding of high strangeness throughout the retelling of these weird stories which has always been kind of baffling to me because i mean the weirder, the better, as far as I can tell. I, I am definitely here for the strange, as strange as you can get. As I mean, it's all just more fun if it's if it's that way. It's just is I don't know. And it's just disingenuous to leave it all out. It's weird. You, you should Do actually
1: you- listen to the experiencers because researchers are Secondhand information. That was
0: just going to be my next next question. Do yeah. you listen to any like experiencers or like experiencer podcasts or anything that like where you're taking in besides like reading the books and stuff that you reference? So you've I which...
1: don't I don't uh, intentionally go to listen to experiencer podcasts because uh-huh. I'm more interested in in the Joshua Kachin uh, thing of uh, comparative folklore and stuff yes. like that. So totally. I I would. I would rather listen to a hundred different uh, experiencers and then just look for um, common commonalities between them. Not totally. to say, Oh, the commonality is the real thing and everything else is, is made up bullshit or a false memory <laughs> implanted. No, I, I just no. want to know how, uh, what, what is common between all people and what is derived from their cultural, historical uh, and, and personal contexts.
0: That's the best way to do it. There was somebody I was listening to talk to that talk about this, who's completely outside of the paranormal realm. And uh, he's a data analysis uh, professor. And he was on this really kind of woo-woo psychedelic podcast called um, Future Fossils. And the dude was a genius. But what he did was take 650 case studies of the paranormal From things like really famous accounts like Whitley Striebers to very like all kinds of different sources, but 650 cases within a 20 year time span and did like a metadata analysis and was like his conclusion was really interesting to me because he has no interest in paranormal He's looking at this very dated. -hmm. Statistics and stuff, and he was like, "If I had to take this to a court of law and argue this, I would win every day. Like, there is no way that like this everything that is evidence in the paranormal is acceptable in courts, and we could win this no problem. Like any basic lawyer, yeah, yeah, but then so (laughs) you have, but
1: and sorry."
0: Oh, no, the, 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 that's not his actual point. His okay. point is that, so his actual point was that that doesn't really matter. What he feels like the paranormal is doing is is forcing us to relook at how we view science. It's telling us we're asking the wrong questions and we're, we're uh, valuing the wrong type of evidence. And we need to change the way that we look at, we don't need to throw it away, but we need to change the way that we look at these things. And I was like, that's super interesting to hear yeah. come from a completely different background of somebody that's just looking at, Data. And that was his conclusion. But yeah, I didn't mean to cut you off there. But no, yeah, no, no.
1: I, I was please. cutting you off. So um <laughs> I, I recently read Bud Hopkins' book and he was very uh into his own bullshit narrative of alien abduction. Mm-hmm. Totally. Um, which is a controversial thing to say because everybody loves Bud, uh, except the few people who call out on his bullshit. <laughs> but constantly he would look for the commonalities between uh, the experiencers, but he would also um, disregard anything else and say, yes. oh, that, that's just this and that, that's a false memory. But the commonalities he would use as evidence of them actually really happening um, I think the commonality between all of the experiencers is him.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs>
1: you know, because that makes all, a lot of sense.
0: All, <laughs> of the, the... All, all of these
1: experiencers had the same narratives because they came to him because they knew him and what kind of narratives he was into. And he was that... uh, uh, telling the witnesses the same misleading questions over and over. And also, yeah, there's the, the, a
0: bias right from the beginning.
1: Isn't hypnosis kind of like an altered state of consciousness, and you are more susceptible to suggestion? And in that moment, even if no, nobody is leading you with questions, you yourself, especially if you're a person who wants to please this this uh, yeah. god of ufology, you want to tell him what he is expecting to hear.
0: Absolutely. I think there's definitely, again, our brains are way more powerful. Like we're not in the driver's seat when it comes to that shit. If you ask me, like that stuff scares me as far as like hypnosis and all of that. I think that's the, you're, you're playing with things you don't know about as far as I can tell. And I talking about the Philip, the ghost uh, made me think about the um, experiment that the Hellier peoples did as far as implanting a alien abduction into their friend's head via hypnosis and then him later becoming convinced that he was actually abducted and having like a ongoing series of experiences and all of this stuff. And they like completely, I'm pretty sure if I remember right, regretted doing it and was like, yeah, this was not, this was I I think uh we did something that we shouldn't have done here. And this I I think all that hypnosis stuff is questionable, I'm pretty sure.
1: <laughs> you know, um I would if you're researching commonalities between cases Uh, If Bud was a real good researcher, he would have compared his results with other people, not just uh, from New York, but from around the world. Um, Yeah, absolutely. And uh, if you're doing comparative studies of something and looking for commonalities, don't look for commonalities between people who are linked with a a, a, a common source of, of the experience, but rather... Uh, compare how Americans experience it to how uh, Africans experience it to how Russians experience it, you know, and look for the, the commonalities are what what I would think are archetypes, something that is ingrained into the social unconsciousness of every human because we all share the, the common condition of being a human. And totally. Totally. People usually confuse archetypes with archetypal images. The archetype is something that is ingrained into the social unconsciousness and is shared between everybody for being human. But mm-hmm. the, the archetypal image is the archetype filtered through the historical, uh, cultural, and, and personal psychological context of the person.
0: That makes a lot of sense. So let's say and-
1: you know you you have the archetype of the wild man, but in every yep. culture you will have a different type of hairy hominid, either a Sasquatch or an Almasti or a Yeren or uh, an Orang Pendek. Though I think Orang Pendek mm-hmm. m- might be a real creature. It oh, is very really? com- Yeah, it is very common to the orangutan. There is a lot of evidence that it may be a flesh and blood
0: thing and still be out there uh, causing sightings and such
1: yeah yeah
0: wow that's cool i didn't i did not expect to hear that from you to be honest <laughs>
1: oh but but uh, th- that still does not uh, so the or- let's say the orang panic is a real creature Oh yeah, but still, the real creature is not an orang pendek. It is whatever the real creature gets named in the biological literature once it is legitimized. Gotcha, gotcha. But, so, like,
0: the orang pendek will still be seen after like the discovery of the actual species exactly. That is named and because yeah.
1: because the orang pendek is a cultural, sociological construct, a folkloric yep. creature. It's not a flesh and blood one. And like, people are looking for Bigfoot and Sasquatch. Uh, They are looking for a folkloric creature because whatever they are looking for, and if there is a flesh and blood creature that is being seen and uh, being named a Sasquatch, that biological creature is not a Sasquatch, but it is whatever that biological creature is, even if it is a hairy humanoid, you know, but the Sasquatch is a folkloric construct.
0: I think you're dead on and I think it goes back to something you said at the beginning of this conversation that will stick with me and that it's not the labels. It's the, in between the labels, like you have to label it to get to the magic. And like, I don't think like, yeah, I think there's something to exactly what you're saying that there's never going to be a Sasquatch discovery because anything that's going to be discovered is going to be labeled something else. And then Sasquatch will live on forever (laughs) and
1: so I, I, I'm yeah. I'm I'm thinking now. Are you in Delaware? I am. Okay. Uh, is the Selbyville Swamp Monster in Delaware? Oh
0: yeah, it is.
1: Okay, and you know that the Selbyville Swamp Monster was a hoax.
0: Oh yeah, and and the person
1: yeah yeah yeah.
0: yeah I, I love that story and uh and actually I just did uh we're doing a series of local folklore for the coffee company I did just did a deep dive as much as I could as into that story and is super interesting and definitely a hoax uh as far as the main the main uh, characters involved
1: (laughs) and definitely a hoax because the guy openly says it's a hoax and I was doing it and that's that, but people are still seeing the Selbyville swamp monster and have been seeing it even after it was, it was called out as an, as a hoax.
0: So- and something that I love to share as a really weird fact about that area is it's the northernmost uh, batch of cypress trees in North America. It's where cypress trees stop existing in swamps. And it's the only, like, batch of those trees in miles and miles. It's real. So it's a really special place as far as, like uh tourism's involved and stuff like that it's just a very weird area in general and like has a lot of draws besides the swamp monster so it makes sense that some folklore has popped up and become real in certain ways around there to me
1: yeah in, in the end it does not it is irrelevant if something is real or not if its influence is felt so how yes. real can something be, you know? And you yeah. have tourists going now to Selbyville, hoping to see the Selbyville Swamp Monster, though probably tongue in cheek, but they are coming yes. there with intent and isn't the the main focus of magic uh, to focus your intent?
0: It is. And I think those, so the question I always go back to is like, did the area become that way because of the intent or did the intent Go there because of the area, like with these weird hot spots, or like every place has a weird spot, you know, like whether mm-hmm. it's a crybaby bridge or a Devil's Road or whatever it is, those roads that are named Devil's Road. Like, why is it named Devil's Road? Like, what was this? Were these places weird before they were weird, or did the people bring the weirdness?
1: Oh, yeah. Like, I remember when uh, Jordan for Campfire was doing. Oh man, I can't remember. Public monster. Okay, is it tied to a to a bridge, and uh, the mm-hmm. bridge is infamous for a lot of people going there and dying, falling off yep. the bridge. So I told him like the legend. It sparked as an urban legend, and then people with focused intent kept coming to the bridge, which is itself dangerous. Now you have more people motivated to come to a dangerous bridge and statistically more people will probably die because more people are coming there. (laughs) The more people are dying, the more this urban legend is solidifying. And now you have sparked a whole mythology
0: Totally. That's super. Yeah, that type of stuff is super interesting to me. It reminds there's uh, I think it was on Strange Familiars or I think it was Timothy Renner that talks about a bridging. He's uh around the Gettysburg area and that's pretty close to where I am. I used to go to Gettysburg. Like it was the first time I ever did like ghost tours or like got. Any kind of like, you know, weird uh, uh tourism type thing as a kid. But uh, there's a bridge that's one of the most famous like haunted bridges in Gettysburg. But it's not the same bridge that the events that would have caused the haunting. Like it's been torn down and rebuilt. But now apparently it's even more as haunted. And like it doesn't really you know have any tie to the historical events because it was not the same physical structure. But just the area and the intent of everyone coming there has. Given the uh, given that same power to the air to uh, the the phenomenon, which is super interesting.
1: I have contacted a few paranormal podcasts, urging them to look into bridges because it, it, bridges are a liminal space. As yeah. are rivers, and also uh, the flow of rivers is always tied to paranormal phenomena. So you know, yep. you have the flow of a river, and you have a river which is a liminal space, and you have a bridge which is a liminal space. <laughs> a lot of liminality there, and a lot of thinning of the veil. So no wonder Absolutely. there is a lot of paranormal um, phenomena tied to bridges.
0: Yeah, I even uh, just north of Selbyville, of Selbyville in Delaware, the next like biggest local legend is a crybaby bridge that like I've heard probably six different stories as far as like what has happened, whether it was like kids jumping off and dying accidentally or some kind of horrible situation where a mom has to kill their baby, all those things. And like, it's a fucked up looking bridge. Like you look at that bridge and you're like, that just doesn't even look safe. Like it doesn't look like you should drive across it. And it just makes all the sense that there's like something to that whole thing. Like, and I feel like there's a, a fucked up bridge in every town that I've ever been to or like you know there's something about it for sure i do you uh do you think that there's something to like as far as like liminal spaces and do you think there's something to the liminality of uh nature and where the uh more urban environments meet like are you something that's always interested me is the people that have experiences in their like backyard like the ones where like they're not in a big rural area but like they're still having Bigfoot experiences or some sort of weird ass crypt and stuff that's like right and or like floating hairy cubes or anything really weird like it always seems to happen in these like just kind of like almost uh, rural but not quite or just like these little patches of wo- woods where like there's no way something like that could exist but it does and I love that <laughs>
1: yeah I, I think like archetypes are a big thing in my understanding of paranormal phenomena I think Monsters are these archetypes within our minds, and uh-huh. we conjure monsters uh, as a reaction to liminality, as a reaction to our mind uh, perceiving something that is on the borderlines of the known and the unknown.
0: That makes a lot of sense. So I you, love you can that. see
1: monsters as gatekeepers of the unknown and gatekeepers of liminal spaces. They are always on the edge of, of what, what is human and what is natural. And of course, people in more urban environments now are seeing UFOs and stuff in the sky because the sky is a liminal space. I yeah, think yeah. like even if we conquer the sky and even if we go uh, explore the galaxy and other planets, wherever we go where it's, it's a liminal space, we are carrying monsters within ourselves, within our minds. Uh, the monster we stumble upon is not a native monster of a planet, but rather a a conjured projection of our minds reacting to the liminality of the planet.
0: I couldn't agree more. That's beautiful. I, uh, I think there's a lot to that. And I think there's, I don't know space monsters is something I've never thought about as uh, as a reality but it makes way more sense that we would bring well, them with it us it makes <laughs> sense like
1: imagine if we live in a in a world uh, in the world of the Jetsons where every every square <laughs> cube of, of of the planet is covered in concrete and there is no more nature so we're going to go up yeah. we we don't have anywhere else to go to experience liminality we go up sense. into space, and uh, space is full of liminality. We cannot conquer the universe. No way and
0: beyond. Maybe,
1: us. maybe these monsters are there to um, entice us to explore liminality.
0: Yeah, that's that's what I was kind of trying to get at. Is that I think there's like, there's, a, a and. It, I don't know how to say it, but it's almost like a gut feeling that this is for the greater good. Like the paranormal is a really weird thing to look at because I know there's lots of, negative sides to all of it and everything. But like, I feel like it's inspiring something that needs to happen for the next stage of whatever the fuck this all is to happen. (laughs) You know, like I, I, I think there's something, something more to it. And I, whether it's something like the Gaia hypothesis or something that's just more, bigger than that, I guess, like more of a universal consciousness or something. I think there's something bigger and it's all So and-
1: if you believe in the idea that a Gaian consciousness is communicating with us and enticing us with paranormal phenomena, I talked on Six Degrees of John Keel about this, and Barbara agreed with, with the theory. What if Gaia, because we cannot, we do not listen to a Gaian entity because we cannot uh, comprehend a Gaian entity as as a higher being that we should listen to. So it is enticing us via these images of more humanoid beings, but which we perceive as higher beings, let's say aliens, or let's say the Virgin Mary, Marian visitations. And it's always the same message. um, Stop your wars and stop your nuclear weapons and save the planet and blah, blah, blah. (laughs) Because we, we cannot, we do not. Maybe we do not listen to Gaia, but maybe, maybe Gaia needs a proxy to talk with us, like like putting up a puppet show for children, and the puppets exactly. are aliens and and Marian visitations and Bigfoot and whatnot.
0: <clears throat> well, and if its main way, like. I feel like if guy is a consciousness, it's going to use every means of communication available to it. So paranormal is just gonna be one more thing it interacts with and it might as well use it as a communic- as a vehicle to communicate the its greatest, greater intent or whatever you wanna say. And it makes so much sense. Like the, a puppet show is a perfect way to put it. It's or, all or the fireworks. Can, and or the you flash. can say
1: like the laser pointer to a cat. Yeah,
0: <laughs> absolutely. And I, I love that. I, oh, that's I mean, a great analogy, to, to the cat,
1: the laser, <laughs> to the cat, the laser pointer is a paranormal phenomenon.
0: <laughs> yeah, you know, absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, I hope, uh, I hope Gaia has a little bit more purpose with, uh, it's laser pointer than I do when I'm fucking around with my cats. As far as, uh, I'm just trying to make them jump and do weird shit. I have no greater plan, but, uh, who knows, right? <laughs>
1: Well, maybe you are motivating your cat to um, you use its mind and ex- expand that's its true. consciousness.
0: I, I, I'm uh, I'm replacing its exercise since I don't let them outside because we live by a busy road. I have to make sure they run around and do stuff, so I use a laser pointer. So I, it's for some some altruistic good, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, that's a great way to look at it. I really am. Uh, yeah, that analogy really hit home for me i think you're really good with analogies we talked before and you said that you you know you don't consider yourself an artist or somebody that's uh you know views themselves in that light but i really think that the way that you uh speak and the way that you convey these ideas is as artful as anything that i've ever done or posted or drawn or anything else so i think you need to give yourself some more credit on that end
1: (laughs) (laughs) I don't know, maybe i'm I'm a liminality between the paranormal and the artistic. Even on your show, you say your show is for the paranormal crowd to talk about creativeness and the creative crowd to talk about the paranormal. Who am I, and what are we talking about?
0: <laughs> yeah, so that's you know a great a uh, great question, but really, I just don't i I've set that structure because it was something where. I listened to somebody talk the other day where the very successful artist and they're like, I know I have something when I actually can have that like one line succinct, like almost elevator pitch. And I'm never, I never have that with anything I do. I'm not good at like selling myself that way or anything I do. And then like with doing the podcast, I wanted to start talking to people, but I realized I had to like message people and be like hey this is a thing i'm doing and this is the i had to give them so so i like i wanted to come with that like one line elevator pitch and that one stuck to me because my two like my two friend groups are either artists or people that are involved with the weird and the paranormal. So I was like, I want to talk to both of these groups of people. And I think that both of them have a lot of interaction and a lot more to do with each other than either of them really gives the other credit for. So I kind of wanted to try and focus some of that. But at the end of the day, I just want to talk to people with ideas that I like. And you are somebody, obviously, that has a lot of ideas that I've really clicked with me. I think I've brought up uh, your ideas on every podcast that I've done so far. So obviously, you've uh, had a lot of uh, uh, influence on my imaginable state here <laughs>
1: <laughs> no problem man um now, now that you're mentioning like marketing um i i need to shout out jordan from campfire tales of the strange and unsettling um you already had him on the show but i don't know what that dude is doing right
0: yeah he has he's... such
1: such a huge following and he's putting out quality content but it uh, it is also it's not niche content like me and you are doing it is no. content for mass appeal, but he's doing it right and he is opening up to all these things we are talking about right now um, and sharing it, them with, with a much larger audience than we can.
0: Absolutely. And he has, again, it's that same thing that clicked with me when... I first started talking with you and I mean, Jordan's the reason that we connected a hundred percent. Like the first time Jordan had me on was either right after your first interview or right before it was, he had the interview, but it hadn't been posted yet. So he was just telling me about this dude with this like really awesome idea. And like it was, all, and then I think before I heard the campfire tales interview, I heard the six degrees of John Keel interview. If I remember right, did that come out first? I yeah. Feel like? Yeah. Yeah. So, and like, once I heard that, cause Six Degrees of John Keel is one of those uh podcasts I've been listening to for a while and depending like I love uh what they do there but sometimes the guests are kind of hit or miss for me and when I heard when I heard you on there I was like okay, this is perfect. Like this is exact. And then I heard your interview with Jordan and it was like a reiteration of it all. But like, I feel like Jordan has that really special way of kind of curating these ideas. Like you said, for more of a mass appeal without losing the, the weirdness of them. And it's the sincerity that he brings to it, which is what I feel like you bring to it. And what I think sometimes can be lacking in a lot of the paranormal podcast world is that like, true love of not the like not just the love of like a specific idea or cryptid or phenomenon but the love of it all and the the idea like that this is something that can make the world better almost which i don't Uh, think yeah
1: and uh, a huge problem not in just in the podcasting community but paranormal ufology whatever community as a whole is people want to be correct and they yeah. let their ego stand in the way of being right. I am concerned with being right, but not correct.
0: Totally. I think and, that's a great yeah. way to and put a, it. And
1: as you say, like, my uh, most, I don't know, positive trait is that I am genuine and authentic. Uh, I like to listen to authentic people. I don't care if you want to tell me that UFOs are aliens or, or, uh, or angels or whatever, if you are genuinely saying that, and if you're speaking from, from your own heart, something that you believe in, then it means something. Because isn't the paranormal catered towards the, the observer and the experiencer. There, there there is not one truth. There are as many truths as there are people in the world.
0: Yes, it is. It's a, the paranormal is a phenomenon of people like it is. And that's, what's so beautiful about it. And like, I think that's the thing that can get lost sometimes for sure. Um, yeah. How did you connect with Jordan?
1: I started listening to his podcast as soon as he put out the first few episodes
0: a year ago and just reached out to him from there.
1: Yeah. I just reached out to him (laughs) I, I'm a very direct person and I just say what's on my mind. I had positive (laughs) and negative things to say, but um, we became very good friends. And I was like, wow, this dude is open to, I don't want to say the woo, but just thinking outside the box. It's not all nuts and bolts stuff with him.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's a, Yeah, it's it's very obvious from listening to the podcast that they cover both angles, but like they're always open to the more out there ones, which is uh, something that's refreshing to hear (laughs) for sure. Do you I know I'm going to completely change uh, topics here a little bit, but did you. You've recently kind of reformatted the way that you're doing Tracing Owls, your new podcast. Are you going to stick with this short format style that you've been doing, you think?
1: Okay, I'm going going to be genuine and authentic. So whatever I feel like putting out, I'm going to put out. Because I don't do a podcast and I don't make a manufactured corporate product for for (laughs) consumption by the masses. I am the main consumer of my own show. So... Totally, it, it exists, so, you know. Okay, we did not touch upon this Darwin's deviations. I still listen to it, go back to it, and now I am remastering it with commentary. The thing is, uh, Darwin's deviations is my tool for self exploration, for introspection, and for therapy. I listen to it and I go, Wow, this was me two years ago, and yeah. I see all these synchronicities, and I see, Uh huh, I was going through this at that point in time, and Uh, I I conveyed it with this metaphor and this allegory and this character and blah, blah, blah. It is there for me to learn um, via my own creation. I create something and then I deconstruct it and analyze it for myself. (laughs)
0: that's one of my favorite uh little rants you go down a few times as far as being like building things and breaking them to figure out how to build the next thing and something that like just resonates with a lot of uh what what i feel creating is in general and like you know again something that you can see in so many different aspects of life that deconstruction but like the the part that people don't always mention is the rebuilding, like the fact that like, you deconstructed Darwin, but you rebuilt Tracing Owls out of it. And yeah, and I'm, I'm
1: totally um, open to the idea of deconstructing and demolishing Tracing Owls. Yeah. I constantly want to destroy whatever I create because that's the process <laughs> I create so I may learn. It's not yeah. for the sake of, of an audience. It's for the sake of me. And if somebody wants to tune in and and watch the train wreck unfold, <laughs> they can. <laughs> and maybe they can learn something um, uh, through, through me and through what I'm going through.
0: Do you have any urges or any uh, in- instincts or have any... Uh- Want to create anything else? Like, do you ever want to do writing or like, like, would you ever put out like essays or articles or anything like that? Like, you know, I, I, I know you said you.
1: <laughs> I've been thinking about that, but um, I was maybe more um, adept at that when I was younger. Now that I gotcha work a corporate job, it's much harder <laughs> to focus your intent on that. But also, I'm an audio guy. Um, I yeah. have a silly voice, and I like to, um. Use different types of, uh, you know, intonations and voices and whatnot to convey a message, which is lost with, with text on, on a white screen.
0: No, it definitely has a whole different uh, feeling to it. But there's sometimes when I will read through the t- the messages you send me on Instagram and I'm like, this could be an article like I could I could take this and make like a 20 page comic out of it. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I sometimes send Jordan like 15 voice messages, each one minute long. (laughs) And he tells me, like, this should have been a whole episode.
0: Yeah. No, so, I think I actually had that correspondence with Jordan after you sent me a batch of those. I was like, does he know that he just is like put it like this is genius can yeah. put this out so easily. So that,
1: that's why I decided like whatever I have to say I'm just going to record it and say it and and put it out as an episode. I'm not making a podcast, awesome. it's more like an audio blog.
0: That's perfect. That's perfect. I love it. Well, dude, we're almost at 2 hours and I feel like this has been amazing. I I mean, is there anything else that you wanted to touch on before we kind of wrap up here?
1: There's millions of things to touch on.
0: <laughs> I know. I know. I'm like I'm I'm at the point now where I feel like well, one, I definitely I, I guess we can kind of give a little teaser that we are going to be talking with a few friends that we've been talking about on a roundtable episode of something coming up that I'm really excited about. And yeah. I think, uh, yeah, I think we're, we're going to have lots of fun conversation for that. But two, I definitely think I want to ha- I'd love to have a podcast with you where it is specifically kind of going into. what. Well, I want to say the future of darwin like i want to now that you're going through and remastering and re-engaging in all of this stuff i'd love to talk to you at the end of all that process and see what your thoughts are on because are you finding you experience it different while you're going through and remastering it than just going back and re-listening to it
1: so i'm re-experiencing it uh, putting my creative process into words because I'm doing commentary on, on how I produced each step, episode and what was going through my mind. And essentially there's a lot of things I did not realize when originally creating the episodes that I do realize now what I was doing and yeah. what I was trying to say, because I did not, maybe I did not have the vo- vocabulary. Then I, I conveyed a lot of Gaia messages, but I did not know, Oh, that's the Gaia hypothesis, for example. Totally.
0: Absolutely. So, I mean, we can keep going for as long as you want right now, but like at some point I'd love to have you back on after you're done this whole process and see how it's kind of changed the way that you view that whole chunk of time. Like do you think it'll change the way that you view that whole chunk of uh, work that you put out or that whole chunk of time, I guess is a better way to say it. (laughs) So
1: since starting tracing owls and kind of talking about the guy hypothesis and chatting with, kind of bigger figures in the paranormal research community, I am kind of torn between two sides. One side is Darwin, which is a trickster, and the other side is a future me who is maybe a researcher and serious. So I am torn uh, between who, who I am ac- exactly. And now that, that I'm going you know, through Darwin's deviations, I'm being reminded of who I truly am. I am a trickster.
0: <laughs> do you think that the the two can exist? As far as uh, do you think one negates the other? And, no, no, uh, I don't th- think. Like
1: I th- I think uh, that both are like yin and yang. And uh, the thing yeah. is, if you show your trickster side, people will not take you seriously when you're talking about serious things. Which I that I discredit. don't even care about now. Like I have decided, <laughs> I'm going to share what I have to say. And people can ignore it if they want, or they can be inspired like you are inspired by what I have to say. But ultimately, it it is my, you know, my truth, my reality, and I'm learning for myself. But I do believe Uh, if you have, you know, something to say, genuine, authentic, you have not an obligation to share it, but you never know when that one person like yourself will stumble upon your content and be inspired by it.
0: No, absolutely. And I, it, there's something there is something like so uh, base about that urge to share things like that. And I think that's one of the things that makes uh, podcasting or whatever you want to call a content creation these days almost kind of cringy is because there's so many people that share without the sincerity or the genuineness that like you were like I was saying, your thoughts are obviously well formulated. When I when I listen to you talk, even on the new episodes that are pretty uh, off the cuff, it's still you have very well-formulated thoughts that you're coming with. And then I'll, I'll even re-listen to like some of my daily episodes. I'm like, ooh, that was a rough one. That was a, that, was, that <laughs> one didn't say much of nothing there. But uh, I mean, I never claim to uh, produce useful content. So that's fine. But it's so, it's interesting. Yeah, I'd,
1: I'd like to maybe uh, suggest something to you. Maybe you should start sharing these things with your friends and talking to them about it if you can't with them. At least use your friends as, as say, walls where you're going to bounce off a a ball, you know?
0: Totally. Yeah, no, that's, so one of the things that is uh, harder than ever, and I joke about it with Allie all the time, my wife, uh, is that usually I talk to the four of the, the four people that live in my house. One of them is a five-year-old. One of them is a two-year-old and the other one's Allie. So like my, I have to remember to talk to people outside of my immediate surroundings a lot and uh, get ideas. But the limitations of uh, I've talked about this before where a lot of the stuff that I do, I do in a very like small time window and I don't like to slow down too much because if I slow down too much, I just don't do stuff. And I, uh, I think there's probably good and bad to that for sure, but that is some great advice I should definitely take up on.
1: <laughs> yeah. And I see that you make a lot, a shit ton of content every day another other artwork and every day, another episode. And I heard you on other podcasts say like uh, the best artist is the one that just does more and more quantity wise. Um, even if, if some, some creation is less, less uh, I don't know, creative than another, <laughs> yeah. at least you're putting something out and at least you're, as I said, like when I was doing Darwin's deviations, I was doing something alchemical, ritualistic, uh, focusing my intent, but you need to focus it through uh, consistency and through, through a big period of time. Yes. So the more content you put out, the more you are maybe tapping into creativity than somebody who is maybe focusing on being perfect.
0: No, I think there's something to that. And I think uh, just any kind of repetition allows you and allows you easier access to whatever you're trying to get into. And I think uh, the imaginal or creativity or the flow or whatever is definitely something that you got to show up every day. It might not show up for you, but you got to kind of get there. And I mean, I, I'm very lucky to make a living off of doing creative work. And that's taught me that like the best thing you can do is just do it a lot and do it all the time and not be so precious. Like just know that everything's not going to be perfect all the time. (laughs) You're going to have some misses no matter what. Oh Um, yeah. But, but the misses
1: are for the greater goods.
0: Totally. And like the so part of what I wanted to say earlier and I think I got sidetracked was that I feel like the Darwin makes the Tracing Owls better. Like I feel like your trickster mentality about some of the stuff reinforces and like you know, I know we were just talking about how it discredits it in certain circles, but like as far as I'm concerned, like that's the stuff that reinforces and makes the other stuff so genuine. And so I don't know if that makes sense, yeah, but I feel I, like
1: I've been told by some much more qualified people in in these communities that they don't like that side. <laughs> that they'd prefer me to be more serious. And I've been thinking and thinking that's why I brought back now Darwin's deviations as a remaster because I want to embrace the fuck I'm gonna totally. I'm gonna keep using that term embrace the faari. I don't I, I don't care about being an expert and I don't care about being a name. I just care about being myself.
0: No, absolutely. And that's, I think, your best path forward. I mean, that's what resonated with me, like I said, right away. And I think that's going to be, you know, I think everybody could learn a little bit from using a little bit more of that mentality. Yeah. Uh, Myself included. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That's awesome. Well, I got to wrap this up soon here, unfortunately, because I have to put the kids to bed. It's no problem,
1: man. This will be your largest episode to date.
0: (laughs) Oh yeah, seems, by far. So,
1: seems that's the that's the thing that happens with me. Like uh, the six degrees episode with me is the largest they have, and Jordan's episode with me is the largest uh, fireside chat. Yeah,
0: they have. you've you beat it by at least an hour. I think the longest one I've done is a little over an hour, and this is mm-hmm. going to be uh, close, almost uh, exact, over two probably because we have that little chunk from before we uh, went sans video here so i think we'll uh i'm stoked to share this this went great i am real excited about it and i definitely want to have you back on at some point to talk more about all of this and i yeah thank you so much for doing it thank you for making all of this amazing stuff that you do and just talking to me (laughs) like that's seriously like it's one of my favorite things is that i just get to connect to awesome thinkers like yourself that obviously inspire what i do so thank you for that
1: no problem, man. And I'm glad glad to be back eventually where we will be different individuals. This, this, what we recorded today is an audio photograph of this point in time and space.
0: That is absolutely perfect. And I agree completely. I can't wait to talk to future Vuk. Yeah. <laughs> um, well tell everybody if you want to where to find tracing owls or uh, Darwin or any of the stuff you want to direct people to, if there is.
1: If you're interested, my current podcast, tracing owls, I mean, tracing owls on any podcast platform, even where you're listening to this podcast on Instagram, you can find me at tracing owls. And if you contact me, I will probably reply. Um, I don't use any other, um, social media, And if you want to listen to Darwin's Deviations, you can either look for it, Darwin's Deviations or just uh, listen to the remastered episodes I'm putting up on Tracing Owls.
0: Awesome, I'll have all those links below. And uh, yeah, thank you so much. Again, I really appreciate all of the uh, imagination fuel that you provide. And this was an amazing conversation. I can't wait to do it again. I hope you are staying cool. You turn the air conditioner back on. <laughs> oh, man, yeah. <laughs> awesome. I'll talk to you soon. Bruce.
1: Okay, bye bye.